Well, thanks, Nick, for that uh, beautiful depiction of the gospel, declaring the gospel, um, and uh, just the, the good news that that is, and, and for Zach and Dan for helping us to look outside of just here and what God's doing around the world and our involvement in that. That's a beautiful thing to see. We're grateful for that. And uh, as many of you know, as we're looking around the world, and even as um, Paul mentioned earlier, what's happening in the Ukraine is just really, really devastating. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, for, for some people here, in terms of just the connection that there's been with that country over the years in different ways, and uh, for some it's, it's missions trips, for others it's uh, you know, knowing people who have invested in the ministry there. Um, during my years in seminary, there were some that went out from there and planted a, a training college there in Ukraine. And the update from this week was that over 300 graduates have come out of that college in the past 30 years. And uh, they're all staying in country. And uh, they would have had their services. To us, it was yesterday. To them, it was today. Uh, But they're worshiping God. They're standing firm. And so as we kind of see the the perverted ambitions of Vladimir Putin playing out and and decimating so many people's lives, um, we, uh, we want to be in prayer for them and just praise God for their strength. And especially that the churches there would be a gospel witness in the midst of it. That's their aim. So can we go before the Lord now in prayer? Uh, Lord, we come to you and and we lift up the Ukraine. We pray for protection of life. We pray that, that again, these these twisted ambitions would be brought to a halt, that there would be repentance and and a turning towards you. Uh, We pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters there, especially for the churches there that they would have courage, that you would keep them and protect them in every way, physically, uh, spiritually, and that they would also have an impact on those around them. Uh, Lord, we thank you for their courage, and we thank you for also the way that, that they are using this opportunity to, to declare your glories and your wonders, even as we, we already have sung, um, that you, you're, the victory is yours, and yet in the midst of this time of of, of Awaiting your return, there is much evil uh, in, in the world. And, and we would pray that by your grace, uh, you would use your people to, to bring the good news of the gospel, to herald your victory, and to also bring an end to the fighting and the suffering that's going on there right now. So uh, with heavy hearts, Lord, we come to you and we, we look to you to keep uh, your people there, especially in ways that demonstrate your grace and spread those, that good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there was a, uh, an ad that was taken out in Facebook uh, by, a, by a Christian university in Ohio. And uh, they wanted to pr- kind of promote their online theology programs and other things. And, and so they put this ad on Facebook. And yet in the middle of the ad, there was, there was a cross. There was a crucifix there. And, and, and the Facebook looked at that and said, well, whoa, that's, that's shocking. That's sensational. That's a violent image. And so they took the ad down. And the university responded with a blog post that probably would have surprised some of the people at Facebook. And, and it was, they, they just stated this, indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. 
It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it certainly was excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross, and left to die. All the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath on this, on this man, God himself, who came to die their, a death in their place. And they went on to say that it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, but it was his love for sinners. He was God, they wrote. He could have descended from the cross any moment. No, it was love that kept him there. Love for you, love for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have eternal life in him. And so they, they describe this, and, and you look at that, and you're kind of going, I mean, I, the hope would be that someone at Facebook is going, huh, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that was used for a moment in their life. Uh, but the reality is, is the cross is, when really considered, offensive today in the modern world, as much as it was back then in the first century. And, and in some ways, we've, we've kind of sanitized it a little, haven't we? I mean, it's only when you really look at the cross and what it is, when you really consider what it means, that, that you find yourself in that place. And, and, uh, so somehow over the years, I think it's been tamed down in our, in our view. Now, now it's sort of like it's a piece of jewelry maybe or, you know, it's a decoration that you put on the wall. Uh, it's some way that you kind of uh, either identify with someone or something, you know, in terms of Christ himself, we would hope. But for others, it's just, no, I, I want to be, you know, kind of religious. And so I, I wear this thing around my neck. Uh, sometimes people wear it strictly as just sort of a decoration with no reference at all to what it really stands for. Um, but when it's really considered, when we really see it, uh, we, we find that, wait a minute, this was the most humiliating means of execution ever devised and, and practiced in first century in such a way that if anyone was crucified, they were considered the absolute rejection of all the culture around them. They were considered the, the outcasts to the nth degree. And... Uh, and so when Paul has gone to Corinth, uh, he, he's there and he's planted a church there. And this city of Corinth in the first century is saturated with philosophy, with slick arguments, with the things that, that make people's ear kind of go, wait a minute, oh yeah, what did you say? Oh, that sounds new. Oh, that was a good one. Again, like a sport. Um, this idea of the cross was something that looked absolutely repugnant and foolish to them. And, and so this city values sophisticated arguments and philosophy. And so as Paul now came there and proclaimed the gospel, a church was founded. And as that church founded, it, it grew and, and people were coming to know Christ and it was, it was beginning to gain momentum. And yet, somehow that sense of sophisticated philosophical discussion started working its way into the church to such an extent that now, for some, it was almost like, well, yeah, there's the cross, but hey, did you hear this one? Oh yeah, there's the cross, but boy, have I got a cool argument, a new take, a new avenue. I've got some rhetoric for you. And it was pulling God's people away from resting exclusively on the cross itself, the gospel, the good news. And so Paul is addressing that. And we find that in, in chapter 1, 
verses 18 and following. Go ahead, if you would, open to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Paul has just talked about how he didn't come to baptize as the Corinthians were continually taking false criteria for true spirituality and upholding it. It was almost, I'm of this person, I'm following that person, I'm following that teacher, I'm following Cephas, I'm following Apollos. And and, and Paul says, that's not the point. The point is Christ himself. And he just goes on to talk about how, hey, I didn't come to baptize. I came to do what? Preach the gospel. That's what I came to do. And now he, he goes on to say, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And after saying that, he continues on. Go ahead and if stand in honor of God's word, would you please follow along? And here's what he writes. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we come to you and... and, and ask that you would take your word now in these moments and really open our hearts to see whether or not we are in fact resting fully and exclusively on the word of the cross. Or have we somehow been uh, in some ways distracted by or maybe enticed by things from our culture that pull us away from that simple, beautiful, all-encompassing reality of the finished work of your Son there at Calvary. Grace us, Lord, to trust you and to rely on you and to rely on your power alone in all that we do together as a church and as your people individually throughout this week ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So when we look at this passage, we find that God overturns the values of the world by his seemingly absurd wisdom. God does that. He takes the world. The world's got their way of doing things, be it success, prominence, intellect, power, might, There's this structure set up, and if you really want to be happening, that's who you're going to associate with. Those are the things you're going to utilize or use. In the first century, it was all Rome. Who were you in relation to Rome? Were you a Roman citizen? Did you have that power, that prominence, that placement? 
In Greece, again, it would have been, do you know wisdom? Are you sophisticated? Do you have great argumentation for everything that you say or do? Can you wow us with your skills and your rhetoric? For the Jewish people, it was, hey, show me signs. Let me see it. I want to see some miracles. I want them to be mind-blowing, and I want to see them now. Or forget it. There's always a criteria. And, 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 and what we find is God's values and the world's values are diametrically opposite of one another most often. And especially when it comes to the way someone comes to be rescued or saved. And so we're going to see that in light of three proofs that God overturns the values of the world by his seemingly absurd wisdom. And the first one would be this. The word of the cross, considered foolish, is God's power for salvation. We find that right there in, in, in verse 18. Notice what he says here. The word of the cross is foolishness. Again, it's the most horrific humiliating things someone could undergo, the worst way to die. And yet, as Jesus voluntarily gave up his life in that way, what happens? For those who trust him, they receive salvation. I mean, if you would have thought of salvation, would you have done it that way? Like, okay, I'm going to rescue you know, you're God, you, you've created the universe, you created the world. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to now enter into the sin, the corruption, the death, and I'm going to voluntarily give myself up. I'm going to die in absolute abject humiliation. Unfathomable that God would do that. And so the, the proclamation of a crucified Savior, it's total nonsense to the way the world would typically look at things. There's no way any of these ancient orators would have come through Corinth and, and spoken eloquently about the God of all dying, in of all ways, on the cross. That's not powerful. That's defeat. And so here, Paul is declaring that it's foolishness. But here's the, here's the other thing. It all depends upon how do you respond to this message. Notice, for those who are perishing, they consider it foolishness. You're rejecting the one avenue for life. You're in the midst of, of a place of needing to be rescued. And, and the lifeline is thrown down to you in the midst of the pit. And you look at the lifeline and you go, that is silly. No. The other side is those, for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The, those who cling, grab on, lay hold of by faith God's offer of salvation in Christ, to them, this foolishness is actually seen for what it really is. It's the power of God. And so in verse 19, Paul will quote the prophet Isaiah I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Isaiah wrote that 600 years before Jesus was born, declaring how God was going to, again, work in his way of mighty reversals, turning things upside down. 
from the way we as people typically look at them. We find that God, in fact, has made foolish the world's wisdom. We see it in different places at different times. You know, how often is there this sort of discovery in science sometimes of, hey, wait a minute, it really actually is good to take time to be alone and just pray. There are health benefits to that. And you're like, duh, yeah, hello. Yeah, that's true. You know, it it really is good for you um, to actually have friends, to be in community. That was a lot of studies have been done in the past two years that it's not good for people to be alone. Duh, yeah, yeah, we kind of knew that one. Why? Because the way God's designed things actually works because he's the creator. He made us. And when you follow his design, yeah, things do work. But beyond all that, the fact is, He is the one who has set up this thing called salvation. And he has brilliantly and beautifully done it in a way that's so simple, a child could understand it. That's so deep, the greatest minds who ever exist cannot stop the plummeting of the depths of his word to know what it means. He does it in a way that completely eliminates any room for pride on our part. He does so in a way that graphically demonstrates his righteous wrath against sin. He does so in a way that poetically and beautifully depicts his love and grace and mercy at the same time, in the same moment, in the same place, and it's on the cross. Human wisdom doesn't get it. Human wisdom wouldn't have invented this way to do it. No way. If God comes and he's going to be a person of renown, he's going to be the one who, uh, you know, is, is prominent. These days he would be a, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, right? He would have started a tech company. No. He would have been the mightiest you know, military ruler of all time. No. No, he's the one that comes and enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He's the one who shows his disciples what it means by washing their feet while still at the same moment saying, if I, the Lord and Master, do this, how are you to live? The Lord just reversal after reversal after reversal. So where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Remember, where are they? They're in Greece. Yeah, the debater. Let's go. Where are they? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then in verses 21 and 22, he unpacks that a little more and he just says, hey, look, these are what culturally are things that are esteemed. To the Jews, again, it's signs. We just mentioned it. To the Greeks, they want wisdom. 
what would it be for us, you know? And I, I actually think if it was the Americans, it's like the Americans, they want to be entertained. That's what we want. Notice, but we preach Christ crucified. Yes, I know what you want culturally. I know exactly what you're after. I'm not going to give that to you. Why? Because there's no power in that. There's no power in acquiescing to whatever the cultural demands of the time are. There is only power in declaring the good news. There's only power in heralding the gospel. And so we fall into that trap. You know, there are times we fall into these things where there's, we think maybe there's some sort of like secret sauce that are going to get people into salvation that's not the cross. You know, let's clean it up. Let's make it slick. Let's make it cool. Let's make it whatever. Happens in our personal lives too, doesn't it? There's moments of conversation. We are all, you realize the people that are around us throughout the week, wherever we go, they're not there by accident. God put them there. They're there in order for us to have an impact. Out of love for them, because of the love we've received, we want to be an avenue of God's grace and God's light in the workplace, in the school place, in the marketplace, in the neighborhood, wherever it would be. But sometimes I think we kind of get gun shy. We're kind of like, I don't know. I don't want to say that. Sometimes it comes under, under this kind of disguise. It's like this. Well, they don't believe that the Bible's God's word, so I can't share that with them. Okay. If you've been here a while, you've heard me say this before, but I had a prof in seminary who used to say this. Look, you don't have to prove there's a sword in your hand to use it. I mean, think about it. If you're going to a sword fight, you're like, all right, we're going to duel. Hold, I don't believe it's a sword. Really? Well, look, it's skinny. It's got a point. It's got a handle. Really, it's a sword. No, come on, it's a sword. You don't do that. You just go like this, and they'll know. They'll get it. No, the word of God is powerful. The gospel is powerful. And so notice the contrast, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to, to Jewish people, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But notice, to those who are the called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Right? So, so God is at work. We're relying on his supernatural work. Why? Because left to ourselves, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, we're told. We're told in the Bible that we are unable to respond to God unless he himself regenerates us, unless he himself brings us to life. And the avenue he uses to do that happens to be his word, the gospel. And so when we kind of think about that and go, okay, well, no, but that's not going to work. I'm going to add this instead. It's like you don't even understand what you're dealing with at that point. So God does this, and it's a beautiful thing, and we need to rely on his means to accomplish his work. It's the gospel itself that accomplishes his work to save the lost. And so God overturns the values of the world by his seemingly absurd wisdom 
The word of the cross, considered foolish, is God's power for salvation. That's the first proof. But Paul's going on, he's saying, but maybe you don't believe me, Corinthian church, because I know you're very sophisticated in your arguments. And I know that, you know, you're following certain leaders. And I know that you've got all knowledge, as they're going to say to him. And you've got, you've got all these gifts that you're using. So maybe you don't believe me. So Paul goes on to say, okay, here's another proof. God has chosen the foolish and the weak, even you. In other words, Paul's saying, okay, you don't believe necessarily what I just said in terms of the word of the cross, though foolishness is God's power. You don't really believe that God overturns the values of the world by seemingly absurd wisdom when in fact, when in fact that is his power at work. Fine, then do this, look in the mirror. <laughs> look in the mirror, Corinthians, because God even saved you. <laughs> That's really what he's going on to say. We find that in verses 26. Look what it says. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul's saying, look, God doesn't work in the ways people expect. And, and, and though the word of the cross might seem foolish to you Greek people, Corinthians, yet God is using that quote-unquote foolishness, to display his wisdom. And if you want proof of that, look in the mirror. You can kind of see the savvy way Paul's doing this, right? He's saying, oh, yeah, okay, you don't believe me. Well, guess what? You yourselves are proof of this. Why? Because look at your calling, he says. And by the way, calling comes up repeatedly throughout this section. God's call and God's choosing of people unto himself. And he says, look at your calling. You weren't wise. You weren't mighty. You weren't noble. Not many of you, maybe a few, but not many. They had little status in the world. That's the irony. It's like, look, Corinthians, you have little status. Why are you acting like you're all that? You're not. And so true spiritual maturity is going to involve thinking biblically. And so Paul's calling them back to Scripture. Uh, he's already called them back to, to uh, Isaiah earlier. And here, he's actually calling them back to Jeremiah chapter 9. And that says this. And notice, similar themes. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight. That's what he's referring to here. He's saying there's, there's no place to boast except in the fact that you can know me by my mercy and grace. And so you see in verse 27, notice, chosen twice. Verse 28, chosen again. What God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the base and the despised, the things that aren't to nullify the things that are. And so there's this emphatic kind of threefold repetition of God choosing 
And that concluding phrase, before God, it just emphasizes that, that in their calling, in what God had done in their lives, they were not dependent upon themselves or their own cleverness. No, they were dependent upon God. And so, as he shows them that, he's opening their eyes to see, wait a minute. Yeah, we're, we're totally distracted here on this arrogance, pride, philosophical sophistication thing. And the reality is, is we're so distracted, we're not even remembering who we are and, and how God called us to himself. And what's the result? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before God. Through the gospel, God works his purposes of salvation and grace and also judgment. And, and the warning in Jeremiah is certainly that. If you will not turn to me, if you will not trust in me by faith, you will face the consequences of judgment. And that is true today as well. If you're here today and you have not received the gift of salvation in Jesus, the call to you today is to turn to him because to reject him means that you're putting yourself in that place of facing him in judgment without the righteousness of Jesus. You'll face him based on your own righteousness. And the demand of the law is that your righteousness be perfect. And if we're all honest, we realize, then we have no hope. Come to Jesus today. Trust him. The result is that no one can boast. It's by, notice, his doing, verse 30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And that's, that's a stunning thing for him to say. Because they were thinking, no, it's by my doing. I'm clever. I got this. Watch this argument. And he's going, no, it's not by your doing. It's not it. We don't place, or we don't have the ability to take ourselves and place us into union with Jesus. And he's talking about, it. he's saying, no, by his doing, by God's doing. Why is that? Well, because as the, as the Bible describes it, coming to Jesus is not simply sort of a, uh, I don't know, a, a kind of tune-up kind of a thing or a facelift or, you know, add a little paint, you know, a little a minor remodel. No. No, coming to Christ is in fact described as an act of new creation accomplished by God. I love how... Um, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians when he's writing the same group of people. And he says, therefore, if anyone's in his Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're being made new. You can't do that. Let's face it. You've probably tried. By now, certainly those New Year's resolutions are totally gone, right? Let me just put it out there. Come on. You've tried. You can't. You know, really, as the Bible describes it, in the same way that God commanded the universe into existence without our help, so also he brings about the new birth without our help. Paul describes it in chapter 4, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians like this. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So in the same way that God created the universe without our help, so also as he saves us, he 
declares light shine out of the darkness. That is hearkening back to let there be light. You are a new creation in Jesus. Why is that? Well, let's face it, because our problem isn't that we just need a slight remodel. We don't just need, again, a a new fixture change here and there and a a little tune-up there. No. We are really messed up by sin. So much so that the Bible says, like I said, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. God has to bring us to life. And as he created the universe, without our help, so too, he brings to spiritual life all who are saved without their help. I think I was reminded recently by what uh, one theologian said, uh, the only thing that, that we've brought to salvation is the sin that we so desperately need to be saved from. So the cross, this, what Nick was talking about earlier, the vicarious atoning death. In other words, the death that took, took our place. He, on our behalf, in our place, died so that all who come to him would live. We have to depend upon God's means for God's work rather than inventing our own. And it's so easy to do that. Uh, one, one of the things, one of my, I, I don't have a lot of pet peeves. Well, ask my wife. I probably have more pet peeves than I know, okay, I'll be honest with you. But one of them, you ever, you ever watching a movie and someone's playing an instrument on the movie? I cannot handle it when they're not really playing. Drives me crazy. <laughs> I can't handle it. I got to look away. You know, because you you know, there'll be some line being played, you know, it's like this crazy, you know, and the person's, you know, she's standing there and she's holding the neck like this, you know? And you're just kind of like, no! No! It's fake. It's not real. It's not really happening. That is, in essence, a picture of all of our self-salvation techniques. Oh, there's a sound coming out somewhere. And I'm going to try to match it if I can. I can't. If I move my hand like this, does that work? No, do I have to go like this? What is that? That's not even a chord. Stop it. Stop it. That is self-salvation in a nutshell. And what Paul is saying here is your arrogance in thinking you can rescue yourself is demonstrating you have no confidence to what God's done to rescue you. And the way you conduct yourself towards others, towards the outside world also demonstrates you have no conscience to what God saved you from, how he's done it, the fullness of it, so much so that you think his way is foolish and the stuff you've made up yourself is actually wise. When in fact, the reality is the exact reverse. So God overturns the values of the world by his seemingly absurd wisdom. And the word of the cross, considered foolishness, is the power of God of salvation. That's one proof. Another proof is that God's chosen the foolish and the weak, even you. That's another proof. But Paul's going on to say, maybe you still don't believe me. Well, here's one final proof. God uses messengers who come in weakness and thus in God's power. Ah, 
Is that not comforting? He uses messengers who come in weakness and thus in God's power. We find this in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul has been addressing this question that, again, something seems absurd in the world's eyes and as the crucified Christ, if that's actually God's wisdom. And then he goes on to say, the impact of the gospel on the Corinthians themselves, that's a demonstration of the fact that he's not the God that utilizes the world's means or the world's ways. Because you would have expected then everybody there that was saved to be prominent and wealthy and socially elite And that's not what he did. And now he's saying, you know what? God's power and wisdom are so different than ours that even the very messenger who comes and brings this good news comes in a way that doesn't at all match up or add up to the world's ways of doing things. And so... Paul came to Corinth weak and fearful. Now, now, why did he come weak and fearful? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, Acts 17, he's been in Athens. He's shared the gospel there, and it was rough. It was hard. Um, he left there discouraged. He was actually uh, going through several different trials. So by the time he got to Corinth, um, this was something where he, he was... He was feeling weak. Because as a matter of fact, you can even see Paul, uh, God's encouragement to Paul there in, after Acts 17 into Acts 18, where he's saying, hey, don't be fearful. Go and proclaim. I'm with you. You know, he's encouraging him in that way. So what, what Paul is saying is when, when he got there, he's going, yeah, I, I, I didn't come. I'm Paul. I'm the man. No, I was weak. I was even trembling. I was fearful. And yet, in doing so, what else did he do? Well, he also not only came kind of in a weak place, he had a specific determination in verse 2 to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you're going, wait a minute, hold on. Don't you know where you are, man? You know, again, you've already said that the Greeks want wisdom. They want sophos. That's what they're after. And now here you are, you show up and you're saying, I determined to know nothing. What? Do you know where you are? Nothing is one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yeah, foolishness. I'm going to declare foolishness, what you would consider foolish. And then he goes on to describe himself in verse 3. I was weak, fearful, trembling. Verse 4, my message and preaching weren't persuasive. So that's, he's talking about the manner in which he conducted himself. And you're going, what is going on? What are you doing? And essentially it's this. I'm talking to people who are dead in their sin, unable to respond, caught up in the the lies of the world, blinded by their own sin. So as I come to them, 
how else can I possibly help them unless I rely on the means and power of the God who created the universe to create in them new life? What else do I have? It's going to be my wisdom? Oh yeah, my wisdom's going to undo the deadness of someone's heart? That's fun. Go ahead, give it a shot. Oh, my, my wisdom somehow is supposed to take the blinders off of their eyes spiritually? Oh, my wisdom somehow is supposed to take something that's dead and impart new life to it? No. So what does Paul do? He says, I come to you. Yeah, I'm weak. I've had a really, really hard, hard several seasons of ministry. I'm trembling. I'm actually fearful. And yet I'm coming and I'm proclaiming to you what? The gospel. I'm proclaiming to you the word of God. Why? Because that's the power of God. It looks foolish. Yeah, okay. Maybe. But it is the power of God, whether or not you see it as wise or not. I don't have to prove there's a sword in my hand to use it. The sword of the Spirit divides, we're told in the book of Hebrews, bone, marrow, soul, spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the sword of the Spirit. Why? Ephesians 6 is going to talk about that. Because it's the Holy Spirit's hands around our hands on his sword. It's his sword. It's not even ours. So depending upon God's power, depending on the Spirit, depending on his means to accomplish his ends, I'm going to come in, Paul says, and I will gladly be a fool. But there's a reason. What's the reason? Verse five. So that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I want your faith to be based on something that's real, that's full, that's true. And it's the creator himself giving of himself to reconcile you to himself through the death of himself in your place. That's why I do this, Paul says. Because God's power alone is what rescues. And we must rest on him alone. Not only in receiving salvation, but also in the way that we declare it. Oh, the cross is still a stumbling block today. But let it always be the center of our message, the basis for our hope in our risen king, and the method that we use to further his work, to further his kingdom, to proclaim his victory, and to call sinners to be reconciled with the living God. Here's the question. Are you content to live in the paradox of victory through weakness, humiliation, and trembling because you're in Christ? Will you relish the absurdity of the cross? Let's pray. Lord, we look to you and ask that you would grace us to live trusting your wisdom, trusting your means.
trusting in your power to accomplish your work. That our hope and faith would rest not in the wisdom of men, but in your power alone. Amen.